waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray. Father, we just pray right now that you would be glorified in the explanation, the teaching, the going out of your word. Our heart is that everyone here today would walk out of here knowing you as their savior and that all of us would walk out of here with this word ready to share it with a lost world. God be with our brother, our pastor Toby, and speak through him this morning. And we bring all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back. Uh, it was wonderful to be with uh, John and Pam Sharp in Chile, um, and to just have the privilege of being able to introduce the foundations of biblical counseling to over 50 Christians there while I was there, both the volunteers at their pregnancy center as well as several pastors and people from their church. Uh, one of the pastors in the, the time that I was with them in the first break just came up to me and said, this is exactly what we need at this time. And so you are part of that. Your sending, your giving makes that kind of trip possible. And so thank you. John and Pam wanted me to thank you. It was interesting. I, even, I always on these trips take a little extra money that is like just in case, you know, craziness happens and you have to have it type money. Uh, and typically, I just leave it with the missionary. Whatever didn't go crazy, I just leave it with them. And uh, I had taken a certain amount of money uh, that, uh, that we gave for that trip. And uh, the, 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 the lunch for the Saturday seminar was going to cost far more than they expected. Exactly the amount of money that I took more uh, than expected. And so, it was a great provision of the Lord that you gave, and so thank you for that. Um, also, I want to take just a moment before we dive into 2 Corinthians 10 to follow up on something I said in our October members meeting. I talked about the fact that we as elders had set goals for us. We're working on goals for us as a congregation for the year 2020. And I just want to actually briefly mention them to you. They are all centered around, you won't be surprised to know that they are all centered around those four phrases by which we seek to glorify God, in exalting Jesus in passionate worship, equipping Christians for life and for service, encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, and engaging the world with the gospel. And so we've actually set one goal within the realm of each of those, and then an overarching goal. 
the goal in the terms of exalting. You will know this maybe from your experience, but our public worship of God is fueled by our private worship of God. And so we as a congregation, we are going to challenge ourselves to commit to prayer and to Bible reading every day, and we are going to provide different kinds of resources, three different resources in fact, depending on how you people read at different rates and in different things, and so we want to provide a few different uh, ways that you can do that. Within equipping Christians for life and service, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that less than half of us who are members of this church are actively involved in a Sunday school class or in a growth group. Uh, maybe half, maybe just over. Where's, well, is Chad, are you in here? Chad would know. We'll ask him later, all right? But I can say this for certain. Many of us who are members of this church are not involved in a smaller group where we can be better equipped in the Bible. And so our commitment, uh, we're going to challenge ourselves to be committed to at least one of those things, if not both, all right? In terms of encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, we want to commit to have two individuals or families that belong to Gray Road that I don't know into my home next year to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then in terms of engaging the world with the gospel, we want to commit every single member of this church to commit to pray for consistently one individual with whom they will share the gospel. Now, for some of you, that will be a downshift in how, many, how much gospel sharing you do. But, for many, but, for several, but also for several of you, that will be a ramp up for, from what you're doing now is to go from zero to one. And so, I want, and so the overarching goal is that the thing that will empower us is God's help, which is why that monthly prayer meeting has to become more significant. Our goal in the year 2020 is that we would have 75 individuals at that prayer meeting every first Sunday night praying for one another, praying for them. Look, I am so encouraged when that Sunday night ends. There are days that I'm sure many of us are just like, it's hard to get off of the couch, to get back into the car, to go back to the building, all these kinds of things. I have never walked out of a Sunday night prayer meeting or a Friday lunchtime prayer meeting and said, why did I do that? I always leave so very encouraged by praying with you, praying for what the Lord is doing. Now, we'll come back to this if I remember. I meant to write it in my notes, but I wanted to mention this right up front, and there will be more. We are going to make a formal commitment to this. Each of us is going to but I wanted to mention it now, and I will mention it again, and we will come back to it, and in December we will commit to it as a congregation. And if you are not committed to this congregation, I would urge you, take seriously what the Bible teaches about the necessity of the local church in your life as a Christian. Now, if you're just visiting, you've never been here before, it's your first time, I don't mean to urge you, except to say, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you should belong to a church. You should belong to His church. Now, imagine what God might do, by the way, if all of us committed to those things. Imagine what God might do. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks about the fact that the worship of God's people and the teaching of God's people overwhelming the unbeliever who happens to be among them. So they basically say, who is this God that so many people sing to? 
that it would pierce. Did you know your singing is an evangelistic tool? Your singing is an evangelistic tool. Imagine what would happen if you were in the Word and praying every single day in 2020. Imagine the difference it would make in the way you think, the way you speak. Imagine the difference it would make if you and I went maybe outside our comfort zone and had people we didn't know into our homes so that we might know and love them because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And imagine what God just might do if every single one of us was praying for and sharing the gospel with one individual next year. Imagine how God might bless that in fruitfulness. But whatever He does, you know it will change? His church will be strengthened. His church will be strengthened. And He will be glorified. And that's why we're setting those goals. So that we might better glorify God together. Now, 2 Corinthians 10. Let's turn there. I suppose we should look at it. But as we do, let me begin by asking a question. In your mind, what marks an authentic Christian. The New Testament draws a line in several places between those who are false Christians and those who are true Christians. Those who wear the name merely as a label and no more and those for whom it defines what they are in totality. What are the marks of an authentic Christian, the difference between those who think they're right with God and those who are actually right with God. Now, we could talk about a number of things, couldn't we? But listen to the way that Jesus, Jesus says some very sobering words to, to, to separate label-wearing with authentic belief and faith. In Matthew 7, He says this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, it's the fruit of one's life and not the fruit of one's lips that reveals authenticity. A person can say all the right things, can't they? A person can actually appear quite great. One can prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works and have radio and TV programs and gather thousands weekly and make the bestseller list and speak with great giftedness and lead with amazing charisma and yet be false. That is precisely what is happening in the city of Corinth. The label of apostle is hanging around the neck of those who are actually false. They have come in, they have wooed with their message, they have wooed with their charisma, their communication skills, but the thing that they don't have is the gospel. 
But their rhetoric has taken the Corinthian church captive. Now, as we saw a couple of chapters ago, some people have actually come back, as Paul has pleaded with them, to turn back to the gospel and back to him as a true apostle. But not all of them have. And so here, after two chapters of talking about the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, I mean, Paul just whips around and he's right back on his topic, which is to defend his apostolic ministry to this church. Now, we don't have apostles running around that need to defend themselves to one church or the other, but friends, we have the apostolic witness in our hands, on our laps. And when we turn, the back, when we turn our back and say, you know, Paul, Paul just hated women. I'm not ever going to listen to Paul again. I'm going to listen to James. I really like James. I'm not going to listen to Paul anymore. What are we doing? We are turning our back on the whole counsel of God when we do that. And so we don't have apostles, but we have the apostolic witness. And Paul is pleading with this church to come back to the gospel, back to the apostolic witness. And as he does, as he begins to make his defense, we cannot help but see this, that authentic ministry has Christ-like character. Authentic ministry has Christ-like character. I read this so many times this week. There are times that when I come, when I seek to work toward this main idea, there's sometimes it just like jumps off the page at you. And there are other times you have to put on your scuba diving gear and you have to dive into and you have to just swim around in it for a while before it finally emerges. And it took a while because what Paul is doing is defending his ministry. But the manner in which he does it, what he describes here as his authentic ministry, smells of the aroma of Jesus Christ. In just under two weeks, many of us will be in homes where a number of scents will come together to make up the aroma of thanksgiving. Oh, there are a few scents that you pick up along the way in these six verses that show us the aroma of Christ. Let's look at it. First, we see Paul's Christ-like posture, his Christ-like posture. Look at verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Now that last phrase, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. This is what he's being accused of, being two different apostles. I actually... I suspect that Paul is saying this a bit tongue-in-cheek. I think he's being a bit sassy here. You know, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Oh, you know, I who am meek when I'm with you, but I'm bold when I'm away from you. I think Paul and I would get along in that. But, I, but this is what he's being accused of, that Paul's bold when he writes and they elbow each other. They say, you remember that letter that he sent? Do you remember how strong it was? Do you remember how many people were in tears as it was read? Do you remember how many people repented? That was so bold, so powerful. And yet he's humble, timid even, when he shows up. If he shows up at all, you remember the last time he was supposed to show up, he was so timid he didn't even show up in town. He didn't show his face. Yeah, Paul has a great career as a blogger or as a social media icon. 
But in person, eh. And this is what he's being accused of. And that's what he's addressing. But notice how he begins. He says, I, Paul, myself, which, by the way, uh, should mean that whatever it, commotion is going on, when, when, when you imagine the, the messenger standing up and reading that, I, Paul, myself, entreat you, every, every eye would look up. Whispering would stop. This is a weighty section he's about to get into. He wants them to feel the weight of what's going on. And he said, because Paul has great authority, he was given authority by the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the will of God, is what he said in the opening. But how will he use this authority? Look at it. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is his posture. The great, authoritative apostle called and trained by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, meek and gentle. Meekness is akin to self-control. It's not flying off the handle. It's being slow to anger, even-tempered, a calm disposition. Likewise, gentleness holds back as well. It is peaceful. The two are so related that when the New Testament is translated into English, sometimes the Greek word for meekness is translated as gentleness especially when it comes to ministry situations. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is saying we should be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And then he says this, do it with gentleness, which is the word for meekness. And then Timothy in the same way, that he is to, 1 Timothy 2, correct opponents with gentleness, with meekness. It's interesting, isn't it, that both of those uh, uh, contexts are in, in the face of opposition. In the face of opposition, Peter says, be gentle. What do we tend to do when we're faced with opposing ideas? If you don't know the answer to that, just turn on any major news channel, and then you will see what sinners tend to do when confronted with opposed ideas. They tend to ramp it up. Because I'm going to win this thing. But Peter says, do it with gentleness. Paul says, do it with gentleness. In fact, Paul says, do it with gentleness. God may grant repentance that leads them to the truth. Meekness and gentleness are crucial in ministry. I mean, it's crucial in life, isn't it? I mean, think about uh, all of you who are uh, teachers in a classroom or you're homeschooling your children. Of course, it's important for teaching the Bible, but just any kind of teaching requires meekness and gentleness, doesn't it? Because things can start to spin out of control. You know, your student just isn't getting it. They aren't getting it. They aren't getting it. They aren't getting it. And then their parent comes along and says, well, the problem is you, teacher. You're the problem. If you would just do X, Y, Z, you would completely be doing better with your student. If you're homeschooling, someone comes along and says, you're just doing this completely wrong. If you would just do X, Y, Z, you'd get it completely right with your child. And what is required in that moment? Meekness. Is it hard when you're teaching and the one you're teaching isn't getting it? They're not getting the concept? They seem to get it, then they fall back? Of course it is. 
But meekness and gentleness holds back. Look, there is no place in the Christian life or in ministry for harshness. There's no place for it. There is place for courage. There is place for straightforward talking. There is no place for harshness. The sharpness of our words must be the Spirit sharpening the Word of God. The sharpness in our words must not be because I'm going to get my opinion to you. Paul says, don't, don't conduct yourself. He doesn't, he's not going to do that. These people have been a long time coming. They've turned their back on him. Only some of them have come back. And yet, he is coming to them in meekness and in gentleness. I wonder if you're power hungry in your conversations. If you refuse to stop a conversation until yours is the last word. Until yours is the opinion that wins with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with your co-workers, with your employees. What is Jesus like? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. No human being had more authority than the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks over Jerusalem, a city that will literally kill him. Where he could display unfathomable authority over them. And he says in Matthew 23, 37... How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and yet you would not come. Some people in wanting to emphasize the authority of Jesus today will say, well, you know, most people think of Jesus meek and mild and gentle, but here's what you really got to think of with Jesus. Well, here's what you really have to think of. He is both. He is both absolutely, infinitely powerful and graciously meek and gentle. And he has perfect wisdom to exert whichever one in any situation he's in. What is it that marks wisdom from above? Show it in meekness, James says in James 3. Gentleness. That's what ministry should look like. When you're sharing the gospel with your unbelieving friend, when you're seeking to parent your children, when you're seeking to help a Christian friend to grow and to change, meekness, gentleness. Also, in addition to this Christ-like posture, Paul demonstrates Christ-like power. They're not at odds with one another. Look at the end, Look at the end of verse 2. Well, let's just begin in verse 2. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, 
I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So here is the issue at hand. Paul is accused of walking according to the flesh, meaning he's more in line with the world than he is with the Spirit of God. Now, why did they accuse him of that? Well, like I said, because he's bold in writing, but he's timid in person. In other words, they're accusing him of being the Wizard of Oz. He puts on a great show in his letters. He seems very, very powerful until you get up close and you pull back the curtain of his letters and then you find this bumbling old man behind the curtain. This guy must certainly not be powerful. He must be walking according to the flesh. And look how Paul responds. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul is in the flesh. He's, glad, he's, he's perfectly happy to concede that. He's human being. He's finite with human limitations and struggles and frailties. He's already described himself in this letter as a jar of clay, as afflicted and crushed and perplexed and struck down and his body's wasting away and he's constantly being given over to death. And really, there's nothing very special about me. I'm very happy to concede that, Paul says. I walk in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. That's a very important difference. Because that according to in the Greek means that he's, it's patterned after something. Not just it happens to be happening. It's kata sarka. It's according to the flesh. He doesn't rely on human resources to be effective. He's not swindling anyone. He's not resorting to trickery and manipulation and other shameful tactics. Listen to Paul. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I had decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul has said that in 1 Corinthians. He says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We haven't resorted to these underhanded ways that other people do. Why? So that when you receive the message, you're not trusting in the wisdom of men. You're not trusting in the cleverness of a preacher. You're not trusting in the capabilities of a communicator. The power of God is at work. That's why I say it simply, he says. That's why I'm just straightforward. That's why the only thing I know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because that's where the power is. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Even in Ephesians 6, it's interesting what Paul says is his great weapon, what our great weapon is. It's not our cleverness. It's not our intellect. It's not our gifting. It's the sword of the Spirit. Here is the great weapon. Now, did you notice how suddenly the scenery changed? <laughs> Paul was walking. We don't walk. We, I walk in the flesh, 
but I don't. He doesn't say, I don't walk according to the, to the flesh, right? He says, I walk in the flesh, but he does not say walk. That's what he was accused of, but he says, I don't wage war. He's just changed everything. We just went from a stroll down a path to sieging a fortified city, just like that. We went from walking to warring. That's what we just did. And in that day, everybody knew that whoever was on the attack had the upper hand. If you had a resourceful and powerful and determined general, no city was ultimately going to stand. And so Paul is going to switch gears and talk about the power in his ministry using siege warfare imagery. So he says... We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul is not on the defensive in ministry. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We may need to make a defense in that way, but we do not live on the defensive. Jesus Christ is not simply trying to hold off the enemy until the end. He's not just stalling until, God says, until the Father says it's time. Jesus Christ is taking ground. He is taking hearts. He is taking lives. He is conquering rebels. He is adding to His kingdom. And we are called to be part of that. We are not simply to hold off the world and just keep them out. We are to take ground. This is what Paul said. This is why you should be praying for and sharing the gospel with that one friend next year. You'll be taking ground. That's what we're after. We're after the world that's described at the end of the Bible where the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Every human being owes Jesus Christ their allegiance and worship, their life, their soul, their all, and we are called to go tell them. The church takes ground. We don't just guard ground. We do guard don't be fooled. We guard. We have a shield in one hand and a sword in the other. And that's why he uses this imagery. And he uses three very familiar stages of, of, uh, of warfare. Stage one, destroy the defensive fortifications. Destroy the defenses. Isn't it... Isn't it interesting how defensive a person can be in response to the gospel? How intellectual fortresses will suddenly come up. What we feel like are unanswerable questions will be thrown out. And then moral defenses. I'm good enough. I don't need I don't need that. I'm a good person. But the arguments, the lofty opinions, the Spirit of God breaks them down through the Word of God, through us, the servants of God. Do you know 
you need not answer the unanswerable question. Did you know that? The power to save people is not in your answer to their very difficult questions. The power to save people is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while you may interact with your friend about those and let them know how a Christian worldview would approach such a thing, it's not the answer to their question that's going to take them to their knees. It's the power of the gospel. It's the sword of the Spirit in the hand of the Spirit-filled servant of God saying, this is the truth. Who cares if they surrender to your arguments? Winning the argument doesn't get anybody into heaven. Someone coming to terms with your explanation for the problem of evil or the existence of an eternal God or any of these things doesn't get them into heaven. Convincing someone of the Bible's position on homosexuality or the the biblical worldview that speaks to transgenderism, and they say, oh, you know what? That makes perfect sense. They are still as lost as all get out. They have to know Jesus Christ. They They don't need to simply know what gender is. In many ways, that knowledge comes afterward. That's when the Spirit really teaches. Stage two, take captives. Take captives. Once you've broken down the defensive fortresses, you go in and you take captives. You have prisoners of war. And what are the captives here? They are thoughts. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You ever tried to take captive a thought? Like put it in a little box somewhere? You ever told yourself, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that? (laughs) That's all you think. This is not the solution to worry, by the way. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. All you're doing is turning it over in your mind. But he takes thoughts captives. Do you know that this word thoughts is used a couple other times in 2 Corinthians and it is associated with a person? Satan himself. So that in chapter 2, Paul says, it's telling them that they should receive this brother back in. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's the word, designs, in chapter 2, verse 11. We're not going to be outwitted by his thoughts. We're going to show love and forgiveness to the repentant brother. His designs are to capture us, but we're going to capture it. And then in chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's happening? Satan himself is seeking to lure those thoughts away, away from faithfulness to God and to somewhere else. So you see the thoughts that must be restrained and put in in chains and locked away are Satan's lies. And the lies that Satan told in the garden, he has just refashioned them in different ways and told them over and over and over and over again throughout human history. You know, God's a divine dictator and he's trying to ruin your life with all these commands. 
There aren't really consequences for disobedience. You can be your own God, your own master. Listen to yourself, not God. Listen to your heart. Follow your gut. Do you know what most of the popular culture is seeking to build up? Who I am. Who I am. It's all right if you're weird. I'm weird too. It's all right if you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do either. You go your way. I go my way. And do you know who's taking that and just twisting it just a little bit so it sounds better and then packaging it in music and books? Christians. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he's written so many words that are in the Christian section of the bookstore. You have to be so very careful. Take thoughts captive. The Word of God, if we are in the Word of God and meditating on the Word of God and studying the Word of God and memorizing the Word of God and living according to the Word of God, the Word of God will shred these lies. If the Bible is the book I pull out on Sunday to go to church and then on Wednesday night to go to growth group, believe me when I tell you The lies will come, and you will miss them. And you will be fooled, and you will be taken captive. But we are to, but Paul says, he's coming, he destroys arguments, he takes every thought captive, and then he's ready to punish the enemies. In this case... Punishing every disobedience will look like those who are in the church who are still believing the lies of the enemy, believing a twisted gospel, refusing to submit to the apostolic witness. These are the people who must be dealt with. You cannot oppose the gospel of Christ and remain in good standing in the church of Christ. You can't do it. And so, He will come, and those who are enemies, by turning their back on the gospel, there will be punishment for that. Now, there is personal implication in all this warfare, right? I mean, as Christians, we must fight for our minds. Anything in our hearts that raises itself up against the truth of God must be taken captive. And how will it be taken captive? With the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. But primarily, what Paul is talking about is his ministry to others. Have you ever thought about ministry that way? That ministry in the lives of others, in evangelism, discipleship, biblical counseling, parenting, pastoral ministry, all of it. It's not just 
It, we shouldn't just picture it as a shepherd with his sheep in the idyllic little field and they're traveling around and he's just got a crook in his, in his hand. Well, the fact of the matter is Paul is not just describing, Paul's not even describing a crook in the shepherd's hand here. He's describing a sword in the general's hand. Every time you seek to share the gospel with that friend, it's an act of war. Every time you seek to help a brother or sister turn from their sin, grow through suffering. It's an act of war. This is ground the enemy wants to hang on to. The enemy wants you hopeless in your suffering. The enemy wants you to think it's purposeless that you're suffering. He wants you stuck in your sin. It's an act of war to say, you know, Hebrews says, we lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and we keep our eyes on Jesus and we run the race and let's you and I talk about how that should happen. Because we all lose our way. We all need to be helped back onto the path. And the friend who does it is not just putting an arm around your shoulder. They've got a sword in the other hand, and they're ready to hack through all the lies with you. Parenting is that way. It is a long, long act of warfare, fighting, fighting against the lies of the enemy. This is why we need Christ-like power, isn't it? Because we're just human beings. I have nothing. I've got a rubber band that I can shoot off my finger, and everybody else has nuclear weapons. You know, the enemy's coming with nuclear weapons, and I've got, doink. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I've got in and of myself. I've got nothing. We have to be in the flesh, but not wage war according to the flesh. Not feel like I've got it figured out. Not feel like I've got all the wisdom I could ever need right between these two ears. We don't rely on ourselves. We rely on the sword of the Spirit sharpened by the Spirit Himself to be the divine power and the divine weapon as we march into the battle of all kinds of ministry. This is what Christ-like power is. I mean, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, He was just a human being when He was here. Remember what people said? Isn't that the carpenter's son? I know Him. I went to school with Him. And then somebody else. You know where He's from, don't you? He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This guy's just a nobody. I mean, come on. He's up there on the cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? And yet at his weakest point, on the cross, thirsty, suffering to breathe, suffocating, losing his life under the torture of the Romans and under the wrath of God, through that weakness, Jesus Christ overcame the power of sin through his death, he conquered death and hell and the devil himself. So that Paul would write, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? 
power and weakness. That's how. And in that victory, he was raised from the dead on the third day, and he will come again. And you know what he will bear when he comes again? He will bear a sword, a sword that comes from his mouth, and he will lay his enemies to waste. Here is John's description. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will destroy every stronghold, every argument, every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and He will take captives, and He will punish every disobedience. And Paul's saying, that's what we do on a very small scale, because that's what Jesus will do when the day comes. Christ-like posture, Christ-like power, finally Christ-like patience. Now we've already seen that Paul is meek and he's gentle, he's holding back, he's restraining his authority, he's being very self-controlled, but now we see he's patient. He's meek and gentle for as long as possible. He is holding back as long as possible. See this in two places. First, look in verse 2. I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing. The Apostle Paul is begging. This is a verb of desperation, of longing. It's often used to describe one who is praying. Paul is down on his knees, as it were, with his hands clasped, saying, Please don't, don't stay where you're at. Please turn. Come back to faithfulness. Come back to the Lord. I beg of you that I don't have to do what I will do if I come. He wants them to become completely obedient. He's not, he will use his apostolic authority, but he is not chomping at the bit to do it. Some people are just chomping at the bit to just waylay anybody in their path. And you don't live up to it. And this is where so many parents go wrong, isn't it? We're just so eager to have our kingdom under our control once again. And certainly we must discipline and certainly we must correct. But are we patient? Or are we eager to ride in on our horse and slay these enemy children? You also see it in verse 6. He says he's ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Can I tell you when I first read that this week, I was like, what in the world? If obedience is complete, what disobedience is left, Paul? Come on. What do you mean, Paul? I believe in the context there and his begging for them to come around. 
I actually believe that what it means is Paul wants as many people as possible to see the error of their ways, that whatever obedience is going to take place in Corinth, he wants to see it come to absolute completion before he gets there, because when he gets there, he will have to punish every disobedience, so that everyone who is only slowly turning now, he wants them to come along. Come on, turn all the way around. Those who are most fickle and feeble, He wants to make sure they're helped and brought back into the fold. When was the last time we were accused of being too patient? Somebody thought, you're being way too patient. It's not an accusation often hurled. Because this is how fast we want everything Paul's patience reflects the patience of Jesus, doesn't it? Do you remember how patient Jesus is with his disciples? How many times he had to ask them, "Um, boys, do do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? Even after he's raised from the dead, he appears on the road to Emmaus to these people and say, oh, foolish people, how slow you are to believe. And what does he do? He doesn't run away. Do you know what he does? He teaches them right there. He comes right where they're at in their foolishness and their unbelief. And the patient Savior who is resurrected from the dead and is going to ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father and come back in glory bends down, as it were, to say, now gather around and let me teach you. That's what Paul's seeking to be. That's what Paul is by the work of God. Friends, we must remember the patience of Jesus Christ toward us. Let me ask you this question. How many years did you live in absolute rebellion against Jesus Christ? Resisting His love for you. Dismissing His glorious salvation before you surrendered to Him. Now, those who are not Christians, and maybe you're not a Christian, do you know that Jesus is patient with you even now? The breaths in and out that you are taking, that I am taking, are all gifts from God. How patient He is as you hear yet again that He has been crucified for our sins according to the Scripture and that He was buried and that He was raised again on the third day. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Him, you will be saved. How many times have you heard that and dismissed it? And yet now, Jesus Christ is being patient with you. But the invitation to come, to have your sin forgiven, to be right with God, stands right now, right now. You can be right with God. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. You know what He's calling? Come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Jesus is patient even now. And for us as Christians... His patience doesn't stop, does it? I mean, how slow are we to learn, to grow, to repent, to change? How many times we fail and fall and forget? And yet, our patient Savior does not cast us aside. Just think about the week you just lived. How many times ought you have been cast aside just this week? 
How can we be anything but patient with others, knowing the patience of Jesus toward us? This is why Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Christ-like posture, Christ-like power, Christ-like patience. Authentic ministry has Christ-like character. Now listen, dear friends, listen to me. Especially if you're a member of this church, listen. A church may not be a lot of things. It may not be large. It may not be influential in its town or in society as a whole. It may not seem like all that much from the outside. But what it can be, what it should be, what it must be, what we must be, is authentic. Authenticity is a word that gets thrown around that basically means you're glad to tell everybody about how sinful you are. Well, we are very sinful and we ought not to be hiding it. If we say we don't sin, we're a liar. However, this authenticity is to have a Christ-like posture, Christ-like power, not dependent on us but on the Spirit. And Christ-like patience with one another. That's how we'll know if we're authentic. If we're Christ-like. Not everyone who says to Him, Lord, Lord. But you, but you know, Lord, I, I cast out those demons. I led that Bible study for I don't know how many years, Lord. I shared the gospel with hundreds and hundreds of people. I read all the theology books. I never knew you. It doesn't mean these things may not be present. They are just not the definition of authenticity. Are you seeking to grow in Christ-likeness? Are you seeking to do ministry in a Christ-like way? May God give us grace to be such a church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You thankful for the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for your mercy toward us in Him, for your patience with us in Him. Lord, we pray that as a church, as Christians, we would be marked by this kind of authenticity, by meekness and gentleness, by being in the flesh but not according to the flesh, by being patient. Lord, I pray for those who may not be a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. That they would see your great mercy, your great love, your great power over sin and death and hell, your patience, and they will come running to you. Make us more and more a place of authentic ministry as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.